You are checking out the first ever Best of Battleline podcast. I figured by this point, we have so many shows in the archive. Let's do a really cool Best of, and let's represent all branches of U.S. Special Operations Forces, the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, and Marines, of course. So that's what we do. We have one guy on from each branch that we've spotlighted on previous shows. So for some of you, this will be a little blast from the past, and uh, you'll be able to listen to shows here all in one episode that you haven't before. And many of you, this will be your first time hearing these excerpts from these episodes. And uh, you may want to go back in the archives and listen in their entirety. Now, who's keeping us going this show and doing what we do? None other than our friends at Ned. And uh, full disclosure right here, I've been using more Ned than usual. I've been, I've been using Ned every single night because it helps me uh, put that anxiety at, at ease. I've just been more stressed than usual. But before our bed, I get at ease. I take my Ned and I get a great night's sleep and wake up in the morning refreshed. And what's better than that, really? I mean, that's what it helps me for more than anything, as well as aches and pains and a whole lot of other things which we'll talk about. Ned is a wellness brand offering science-backed and nature-based solutions that offer an alternative to prescription and over-the-counter drugs. Ned does not cut corners nor spare expense when it comes to CBD products. Now, the benefits of cannabinoids, there's a wide range that you can learn about at the site, but as I said earlier, a sleep aid, also used to treat insomnia, an anti-inflammatory, a natural pain reliever, and it's used to treat anxiety and post-traumatic stress, depression. It's a rich source of antioxidants. And it's also been used to treat more chronic conditions like epilepsy, Parkinson's, and Alzheimer's. So you're going to want to check this out. Many of you have become subscribers, and hopefully many more of you will continue to. So uh, your promo code that you could use with us is Battleline, and you could use that by going to helloned.com slash Battleline, or just enter Battleline at checkout for 15% off your first one-time order or 20% off your first subscription order, plus free shipping. That's H-E-L-L-O-N-E-D.com slash Battleline to get 15% off your first one-time order or 20% off your first subscription order, plus free shipping. Uh, a lot of our listeners have been using them more and more and have become subscribers. And you could just start with the small dosage. It, it'll give you subtle effects and you could take it from there. I hope you check it out. Once again, that's helloned.com slash battleline. Thank you, Ned. Let's get right into this episode. From Omaha, Nebraska to New York City, from planet Earth to extraterrestrial life in space, a podcast with no equal, engaged in unconventional warfare through your speakers and headphones. This is a show about embracing the suck, conquering your demons, and finding God in the face of adversity. Chris Tonto Peranto. Switch is on. Motherfucker, I'm going to shoot you in the face. Ian Scotto. You know, Ian and I have been dating for a long time. You are now tuned into the Battle Line Podcast.
The Switch is on Battle Line Podcast. Welcome to this best of episode. And uh, we're going to start things off with one of my favorite guests who we really need to have back on soon. And I was just texting him to tell him we got to have him back on soon. This is from episode 40, none other than representing Army Special Operations, Green Beret, Derek Gannon. Yeah, Adam wrote us and he said, Ian, I know you're probably overrun with guest suggestions, but I was wondering if you still had to connect with Derek Gannon. So, you know, your wish is our command here. Uh, And he wrote, (laughs) I found his perspectives uniquely interesting, especially in this time as they pertain to the police being law enforcement myself. And then he asked uh, another interesting topic he had strong opinions on was the SFAB and was wondering how he felt about the SFAB taking over the Columbia mission, long attributed to 7th Group, who largely owned that counter-drug battle space. So before you even give an answer, could you kind of break that down for the audience who has no idea what we're talking about? Well, Ian, if you remember, I started tracking this Antifa stuff at home probably, what, like four years ago? Yeah. And uh, the the militarization of I remember I wrote an article uh, about the militarization over militarization of police that was met with an absolute. Can we swear on this? Is this yeah, hell yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, <laughs> okay, of course. And it was met with absolute f- skull fuckery from all swords, all, all swords just coming at me to to dive onto, and it was just there. How how could you take our MRAPs from us? And I I think Adam is the guy that I absolutely had a conversation with like four or five years ago that he was like, the only guy was like, you know, explain yourself type thing. You know, he kind of went Pat Skinner on me. He was like, I hear what you're saying. What are you, what are you trying to say? I was like, I don't think, I still don't think that police forces need MRAPs and 10 inch barrel roofs and kit better than SF operators have to do a, you know, a no knock warrant on a guy who's selling dime bags of weed. Now, that was when I was living in Portland, the weed shit. That's fine. I still think weed's fine, but th- that's when I was I was seeing a lot of – I was going to a lot of protests. I was, I was seeing a lot of Black Lives Matter kind of like infancy movement and Antifa throwing piss bottles at horses and shit here, even here in Dallas. And it just was confusing, so I went down the rabbit hole with that. Um, I think Adam is one of the police officers that I had a really good conversation with, and I – I was more of a fan of them getting out of their police vehicles. Now, remember, this is four years ago. I brought you to police you're, their neighborhood. You're still. I, I'll be honest. I, I don't think you're. You're. Well, I don't think. I know you're. you're I say the same thing. No. So, I. You know. I. I know you're going to keep going, but I. I. I I'm to to date, and I still train a lot of training and a lot of police officers out there. I don't think you're wrong, man. So I hope you're not. And again, I'm telling you this because I hope you're not backpedal on it because I, I no. think you should stand strong on that because I, I completely agree with you. But keep going, man. I, I absolutely will die on this on this cross that I think the cops need to take the armor off. Right. The the plate carriers off. You can still wear your your ballistic under, you know, your undershirt. I get that. I know that there's bad people that are going to do bad things. We've all seen it. Right. Yeah, but I think if you engage with the neighborhood and you in you know I'm an old school Irishman from an Irish you know Catholic family, <laughs> yeah. you know yeah. the cops lived in the neighborhood that they policed, right? They lived in the neighborhood, so everyone knew that you know Officer O'Keefe is right <laughs> up the street, and you probably shouldn't mess around with his car. And if you do, someone's going to tell him that you did it, right? Because he's a neighbor. Yeah, and this is a thing that they're having with Portland police. When I was with Portland police, they're getting. These kids are screaming at them. They're like, you don't live in Portland. Well, yeah, <laughs> it's expensive as shit to live in the yeah. city. So no, no cop's going to live in the city. 
but they need to get out of their, you know, I think they need to get out of their police vehicles. I need to, they need to take that, that aggressive standoff that we've taught them, right? You're not at war with civilians. You're not, you're, this is not a war zone. Now there's some parts of the country that are at literally war zone like levels, but get out of your car, engage the, engage your, engage the constituency of who you police, right? You know who's going to be the troublemakers, and the poli- and, and, and the, the population is going to tell you who it is, and that's still something I think that holistically we need to take a more a more I don't want to say psyop because I don't like those speaker carrying fools, but yeah, yeah. A, you know, take a human <laughs> type of approach to put law enforcement to policing. Wait, you, you know, I I and I'm not a smart guy. I shouldn't have paid for that master's <laughs> degree in criminal justice. I I really wasted my money on it, but. Even back, and I went got mine in 95 before I went back in the service, there was something that's been around forever, and it, we, we actually had to take a – I remember taking a whole course on it uh, for a semester. It's called community policing. But that's exactly what you're talking about, and it's been around since the 60s and 70s, like you said, with, with O'Keefe that is out in his community. People know who he is. He doesn't look like a goddamn Terminator with his kid on and his sunglasses on that you can't talk to. That is what – we need back in the police. And I agree that when you talk, get out of your cars, yes, get out of your cars, get to know your neighborhood, get to know and tell, show people that you're not just a fucking robot out there yeah. that wants to, that, that believes everybody, you know, that believes everybody's guilty. Everybody is, is, is up to something because that's what has led us to where we're at right now. I, I honestly believe that even, even overseas, when you're working the GRS or GB stuff and you're out, brother, I, I, I didn't wear armor in Libya, except that night that we were in the firefight. Never wore it. I was always out, and, and you know, you're doing, you, you're, you're, you're getting the atmospherics. And I know this is a foreign country. We're not talking about America. Even when I was in Kandahar, very rarely wore anything uh, to to make it look because you you look just intimidating. And then you're looking untrusting. And there are times when you need to wear. It. Yes, when you're doing your when you're doing a DA mission. But like you said, this isn't DA missions in the United States. That's not what you're doing here. And if you want to do that, then sign your ass up and get overseas. And go on those DA missions. Do on do Absol- <laughs> Absolutely. If you want to if you want to skull bounce someone off pavement, join do do the work. Volunteer two or three times to get to units. Yeah, just probably just piss off a bunch of green berets and SF guys. You know what I mean? If <laughs> no, you get to the unit and it's time to do work, do work, right? Throw armor on. It's time to do work. Do you work. entered into you entered into the game, you're going to win stupid prizes, right? But exactly. you shouldn't look if you're a police officer, you shouldn't look around and be like, "I'm a fucking sheepdog." These are all of my sheeps and every one of these people are wolves because eventually you're going to start looking at a specific demographic yeah. as the problem. It's just systematic. It's systematic. And that and here's the new, here's the new and improved Derek Gannon. It's probably because I live in Texas and I'm absolutely allowed to do whatever the hell I want. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. It's crazy. Everyone, like when I moved here, my parents were like, "Oh my god, you know, why are you? What did we do wrong? Like, why are you going to Texas? <laughs> what did we do wrong? And I'm just wrong? like, I'm going to Texas. I'm going to Texas. I, I, I'm going to get me some cowboy boots. I can't have, the, I can't wear a cowboy hat because I'm not a native. I figured that out real quick. The cowboy boots are fine. And no one has told anyone no one has told anybody any f- woman that i know what to do with their vagina here how to have children <laughs> none of that shit governor abbott hasn't uh, issued me a wife none of this is happening <laughs> <laughs> what texas has got 
Now, maybe in West Texas, I don't know what's going on over there. This is a big state. We don't know what's uh, going on. Over there. I, I guarantee you, West Texas, maybe when it gets closer to New Mexico, but I think West Texas is probably even more, even more going that direction. Where because my dad grew up in Lubbock. Lubbock is man, yeah. You, I'm, I'm sure that everybody's open carrying their freaking lever action rifles still over Correct. there. Man. So, it so we're, the we're most, good. It is the most comfortable I've ever been in the states. <laughs> Because oh, I'm walking through like a Walmart and there's five or six dudes that I know. I'm like, I got you, buddy. I'm not noticing a Glock. Good for you. Good for you. I mean, there's no Keltex around here, man. These are like no That's awesome, man. Yeah, you know it's what? Like, it's like they're it's like their extension of their of their like jewelry. Like they have some nice pieces running around here. It's yeah, like man, you know, that's classic, man. You know, so Derek, before we uh, get off track from it, because I, I, I didn't want to stop you because you were on a roll, but I think what you addressed was really more like the first part of the question. So, so the yeah, second part of the question was the one that I don't know anything about, really, because of course I know the law enforcement <laughs> stuff, but where he said um, that he knew you had strong opinions on the SFAB. And was wondering about the SFAB taking over the Columbia mission, long attributed to Seventh Group, who largely owned that counter drug uh, battle space. That's the one that you would have to explain to me the background. And I, and I think Chris, I don't think either of us are well, they, are they, up to they date didn't on that. Have an, they didn't have an SFAB when when I was in, and that's the no, special forces assist. But bro, I, I'm looking looking at it from afar and not being. You were actually involved with it. You know more about, it. but. Isn't that just when S they're taking the FID mission and giving it to an ad, a unit instead of just leaving it with group? Is what, why would they do that? It's just a, it's a FID mission, for, and maybe I'm completely wrong. But what I'm looking, it's like okay, wait, FID. They already had guys that did that. They were called right. Green Berets. They did the FID. Yeah. Why the yeah. fuck do you need to make a whole separate unit to do the FID? But was it maybe I'm thinking? Well, maybe it's because they're moving the Green Berets back into doing more DA stuff. Maybe more like the SIF teams. More maybe more SIF teams. And they need they just need to get that away because that's more teaching and they need just to give it to guys that just want to be out there teaching. I again, yeah, explain that to me because I was looking and going, man, that's that's just a FID mission. Why did they is that just so people could get more medals and more ribbons? So you got more people saying they're cool because I'm on an SFAB team and and you don't have to go through selection anymore, or do you have to be long tab to be on it? Yeah, I, I know absolutely nothing about it except from what I wrote because it wasn't it wasn't when I was in. I didn't I didn't see any of that. Dude, you are absolutely right about the awards. And here's the thing. The SFAB has nothing to do with special forces. It has nothing. It's not even in the same MACOM. Okay. It's a unit that you can you can apply to, right? It literally is a FID mission. They're taking – okay, let me start from like left to boom, okay? When the SFAB started coming out, you know there's like secret societies of – you know, guardians of the green beret, shit like that. Sure. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yep. 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 They're, they're all toxic. Everyone posts shit about, you know, like lizard people living in Washington. <laughs> <D>. <laughs> it's fucking crazy. Like there's actually good shit yeah. within these secret, these, these closed groups. So I, I was started the fusion cell. I thought maybe I could strike out on my own after the, uh, sure. the soft rep years. I'm going to, that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> That's all you have to say. <laughs> That's all, all I got to say is that. Say. And, uh, you know, I, this, it, it was, a, it was like, Hey, have you ever heard of this, uh, security forces, uh, assistance brigade, right? SFAB. And I was like, no, what is this? And they started show like people started posting pictures. They had fucking green berets, off color green beret. You couldn't tell the difference between hunter, the hunter green berets of, of, of special forces versus the SFAB. 
Okay. Their patches were from the – there were the throwback Rakondo patches that were a fucking Ranger patch in Vietnam. Oh, wow. Okay. So oh, I did some fucking digging, and it was General Goddamn Chief of Staff Millie's baby. This was his idea. So I decided to start poking the bear, and I started a petition – I don't think I've ever thought, I ever told this fucking story, but a few to a few people. Hey, oh yeah, we like getting the scoop, man. And uh, it was one of those online petitions, but it was from the White House, right? So if you you get, I said it's like you get five thousand or ten thousand signatures, it'll be put in front of somebody. Somebody's going to clap eyes on it in the government, right? Well, within two days, that son of a bitch had like fifty thousand signatures. Right, because I put wow. it through the, the SFA and all this other the association, all this other shit. And w- what did the petition say specifically? It was stop. It, it, I, I'm going to paraphrase because I haven't seen it in a while. I wrote it when I was was still a writer and could write angrily and passive aggressive ease. <laughs> but it was like you're stealing all of these things. You know, you're you're stealing the, the Green Beret that was given to us by John Kennedy himself. Right approved by John Kennedy, and I was I put pictures and all this other shit in it, and it was like you know sign this petition. To at least change the headgear, we knew we couldn't. We could once a unit is stood up. There's no way you're going to get it. There's already money allocated. Yeah, allocated yeah. as a unit for 24 months for two years. That unit is is that unit, right? They've already they've already sliced off the uh, defense but defense budget for it. So yeah. it's there. We but you could change the beret. It looked green. It looked literally green. And we had kids in the SFAB. That were sending us pictures of like boxes of these things, and they're like, you know, you know, this is what like we had in, inside, you know, rats. We shouldn't call it snitches, right? But they were they were our inside. <laughs> fish, right? We totally pumped them up like you're doing this for America, kid. You know, we're like fucking snitch. But he was telling us stuff, so it was good. So here's the here's the kicker, Anna Chris. Here's the goddamn kicker. Day three, I get a I get a phone call that I don't recognize. It's an undisclosed number from DC. And I don't answer because I'm like, I'm paranoid. I'm like, I don't know you. It kept calling. So finally I answered it and it was General fucking Millie's chief, of, like his adjutant. So it was, it was his major, his major choke, his chokey boy, his, his 04 chokey boy. That's yes. calling. <laughs> and he's like, this is Colonel so-and-so. And I'm like, uh-huh. oh, so, oh, sick. Okay. And I'm like, uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. And he's like, do you have time to speak to the, you know, the chief of staff, General Millie? And I was like, all right. That's literally how I said it. I was like, okay, like someone's messing with me. <laughs> You're like, okay, okay like, Frank. Yeah, nice try. Frank. I was like, yeah, okay, okay, Chad. We're okay, Chad. <laughs> and uh, he goes, okay, stand by for the chief of staff. And it was like, it made this like weird click over noise. And I was like, holy shit, this is a real switchboard. Like, this is a government switchboard. And he, on comes fucking Papa Bear fucking Miller, Millie. Hey, how you doing there? It's, you know, it's, it's Master Sergeant Gannon. I'm like, holy shit, he's got my TD form two fourteen in his hand. He knows everything about me. I'm like, this dude's legit. And I'm like, holy shit. So I made I made a choice, Chris. I'm like, how do I do I do I freak out in my head? I'm like, you know, like fangirl squealing. I'm like, holy shit, staff. Or do I act like a tough guy that I was taught in special forces? So I'm like, I'm gonna put on my sunglasses and be cool, right? I'm like, hey, sir, how are you? Right? Like, I, like he and I are old drinking buddies. I'm like, hey, how you doing, buddy? And he just starts laying it out chapter and verse. He's like, the beret is this color, this color, this color, this color. So I started firing. But he thought I was just gonna listen. I was like, hold up, you know the 
you're a special for you're a f- your former fifth group guy, right? And he's like, yeah. I was like, dude, you know that beret is, yeah. Like, what is gone? And he's like, well, you know, we probably it's 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 a T brown, and we t- you know we <laughs> were taking it from the World War II, you know, British forces from like you know, and he just started like throwing out this like obscure. You know, S- you know, SOE type shit from like the OSS days, and I'm like, okay, that's still special operations. And he's like, you know, they're going to take over, and they're what they're going to do is they're going to be training, you know, foreign, you know, internal defense. They're going to be training armies and stuff. So you know, Green Berets could come and just pick these units up. And then the phone call, you know, ended. He was like, well, thanks for your time. I'm still not going to rescind the <laughs> the petition. I'm still not going to rescind it. It's still out there. It yeah. now has a lot of its own. You know, welcome to the one percent of the the GBs that absolutely will not let you, you know, do the beret. And the beret did come out and it was brown. There's the left of boom. Now, the reasons why they started SFAB was because Chris, you know this, the military is usually about four years behind where we are in current. So someone had written in paper and they're like, hey, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan has showed us that. Green Berets are on par, if not as good, as special operations, rangers, and other folks of that nature that do direct action, right? Direct direct action became the lick, right? It became the jam. Yeah. Everybody was doing it, right? It was like (laughs) – Everybody everybody was was doing it. It was like – It was like one minute it was – one minute it was like updo haircuts for girls and the next minute it was yoga pants. Like everybody started doing it. And I was in a fifth team. I was in a SIF. I was in fifth group SIF. So we were sure. doing we were we were doing it with y'all. Like our we had no, a, you yeah, yeah you you and for those that don't there's commanders extremist forces. That's we, we at range of battalion. Yeah, we make fun of group guys, but then the SIF guys. Well, that's not really the guys were because the SIF guys are doing the the they're doing the GA stuff. That's that's what we you know that's that was it. You if you were a group guy, you from my opinion, and you tell me if I'm wrong. If you're a group guy, active group guy, you wanted to be on that SIF team. That's what you were striving team. for. Yeah. And if you weren't on SIF and you're an active GB and your unit had a SIF team there, if you weren't on SIF, you shit on the guys at SIF. That's, and that's, we just walked, we literally walked past you in our Patagonia jackets and fucking blocked. And we're like, yeah, dude, keep shitting on us. We're good, dude. Where are you guys going? We're about to go shoot 50,000 rounds of the shit that you guys allocate for a year in a day. See, guys. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, man. It, 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 and that was, you know, that that was who, who you know, that we had the guys in, in Tripoli um, going. That was that 10th group, that 10th group SIF team. That was fucking yeah. awesome. I, and they, they they were, dude, they were, that's why I couldn't believe they weren't. Kind of, well, anyway, that's a whole nother story. We don't, we'll go, keep going with yours. That's a whole nother. We have, we, you and I could have a great conversation about that because I know some guys on that 10th group that SIF, that's literally oh, fucking dude, they were literally the mission that we do when we forward deploy is that's what I was telling. Why do not people? That's what I said. I said, this guys were there. They were actually his close protection that were some reason pulled out of country. And I'm, when he showed up, I'm like, where the, cause we, when I was in Tripoli, they'd come over. Our, our chow was better. So we'd invite him over and they would eat with us at our, at, at our annex there in Tripoli all the time. They'd bring the ambassador over for a meeting. It wasn't, they wanted to come over and eat, which is cool. Come over and hang out with us on Fridays. So when he came in the country, Stephen was like, where's your team, buddy? He's like, nah, they got pulled out of country. Like, what the fuck? You're coming here? 
and you're pulling your sift team. I mean, those guys, they, they, he was not going to be touched. Nobody would have messed with him because he had a whole fucking sift team that was his close protection. I remember on the radio calling, and those dudes were hustling, man. They were yeah. fucking hustling to get to us, and they got shut down. Eh, yeah, the whole, we got to have you on. We'll talk about that because I'd like <laughs> yeah, to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, the one thing I don't like about the movie is the Sith guy is sitting in a, in a C-130 of all things with, like, musket rifles. And, like, oh, I know. I saw and, that. I'm like, my, he had no. a fucking longbow. I saw it. I'm like, God, damn, long gun. I was like, what is this? Is this, like, the group support battalion <laughs> following them? Who's I know. Like, you've, well, you've got – I looked at – okay, like, okay, M4 got shorty, shorty, carbine, carbine. M16. <laughs> like, what the fuck? Oh, and that was one of my hits on Michael. I was like, dude, why you got him with an M6? But they filmed that. We weren't there with that. Oh, that's, that's why. Because I know you were, you guys were all there to make sure of the accuracy. So, And, and yeah. yeah, when they did that, I think they just did it on an airfield in Morocco. And that was just a quick scene. You guys yeah. both have to remember, though, you were like 1% <laughs> of 1% of me. You know, even less who notices this type of thing and it bothers you know, them. That's what's funny. You know, the first was they were like we were like the grayest of shit back in the day they're like who are these like stepchildren like don't worry oh, oh dude, we had we had a good sift team in, in kurdistan when i was in erbil too they were right down the road i mean they were great guys we'd we'd do our shit we just made sure where they were at and we because they were living on their own we were living on our own and we just hey here's our comms here's your comms if you need anything hit us here if we need anything we'll hit you up here and it was great now they they had a good team in erbil that would shoot down to kirkuk and mess people up down there so yeah. anyway yeah yeah keep keep going with this SF yeah, because okay, I, so I, I, i'm sorry so we're you know the, the 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 military moves the government moves about four years behind the actual the actual bleeding edge of what we need to be doing so this general milley idea was SFAB. he's said well you know i'll create an advisory group a battalion of advisors that would come in and train foreign militaries, militias, what have you. So then SF and special operations, SMUs, all these other shit, they could just kind of come in and plug and play. Well, that's not how it works. You have to build a rapport with yeah. them, right? <laughs> that's why we, that's why we went to the touchy feely GB side. You know, we're wearing loincloths and eating and at lamp lights. <laughs> yeah. Trying to build a, a relationship. Well, these kids would show up, and, and, and they, their job was to, to was to prep them at level to level one, level two, to where we would show up, and we'd have guys that could that could already load and unload their AKs and actually shoot in one direction and shit like that. I know I'm that's actually no, I'm not I'm not going to apologize for that. It's actually accurate. No, it is. Um, you're, you're you're spot on. I had a guy itch his head with the Makarov with the, with the muzzle. When we were teaching him in, in Kabul, I'm like, dude, he was scratching his head with the muzzle of a damn mocker. Uh, I got you, dude. I get you. I feel yeah. you. <laughs> so, you know, the, the whole concept was it was and I doubt Millie, General Millie's he's got more shit on his plate than listening to the podcast. If he does, I'm like, hey, what you know, what's going on, bud? But I think it's <laughs> one of those. How do I get this on my CV? Right. Like, how do yeah. I put something yeah. on the resume? Oh, I know. I'll, I'll make a fucking battalion. Out of thin air, and it'll look good. Yeah. So the S the S Fab really did was supposed to take the kid from us, right? But then, you know, the GWAT is still going on, and then we started looking into Syria, and they were sending SIF teams over to Syria. I, I'm pretty sure everyone knows that by now. I'm not breaking any yeah, kind of. No, language. you're not. It's it's out on dude. It's it's on the Google. It's out on the everybody's <laughs> twatting it on the Twitter. So. Yeah, everybody knows about it. They don't, you know, they they, they spell it C E F, but I was like, yeah, okay, whatever, but, but. 
you know, they started seeing that the CRIF and the SIF that were going over there were absolutely having to do foreign internal defense, right? Yeah. They were having to do that because you can't put an Italian SVAB into Syria. And we couldn't do what we did in Iraq, if you remember this, and if people don't really know this, we took about 300 Kurds yeah. and Iraqis uh, and took them to Djibouti. And trained them to become what is now known as the ICTF, or the Iraqi Counterterrorism Task Force, the the Gold the Gold Line Brigade. Yeah. We we took the the original gangsters over there, which I think only like eighty still are alive. Wow! During the onset of the Iraq the Iraq War, to train them up so we could do hits with them, and we could clear rooms with them. And these dudes were shit hot, Chris. I mean, when they were done, these dudes were. They were they were yanking and banking. They were they were clapping cheeks over in Iraq. Well, they, they, they you're going. You guys are sending them out on their own, man. For, they, there wasn't even there was maybe some Overwatch from an HQ element, but they were they were doing everything on their own, dude. Doing that, doing the hips and get air assaulting themselves and yeah. and yeah, they were they were bad. A lot of those, weren't a lot of those guys Pesh too? Didn't, uh, they were Pesh, they, yeah. They were bad, oh, dude. Oh, those, yeah. uh, those guys are badass. They. Some of them couldn't even go home. Like they'd go, like I can't go home. There's a there's a bounty on my head. Yeah, yeah, that's what sucks yeah. about. The people don't get that in there. They they can't. They work with the Americans and they're doing hits. They're 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 done. They they can't. They're they're basically that's their life. They they've got to brace, cut ties with their family. I don't think Americans don't get that shit. That's how serious it is over there. So when we leave a country and we leave them to their own accord, we've we've fucked them. We we pull out of a country like dude, we just fucking destroyed. And that hurts, it hurts the S it hurts me. It hurts, it hurts my friends because we're still, yeah. we, some of us, um, some of us are still Facebook friends with these guys. Like I am too. We all yep. coming back. We're like, Hey man, I know it's, I know it act. We acted like we ran shit in the States, but when we got home, it was like, yeah, onto the, onto the next one. It literally was like onto the next. And we're just like, you know, Masalama, dude, I, I love you to death, but got I mean, it. We're, our hands are tied. And I remember, I remember in, God, this is how old I am. I remember in 07, we kind of got a secondary mission to maintain friendships with these guys because, you know, d- dudes at JSOC and, and SOCOM were like the, the writing was on the wall. Yeah. And we need we needed to have good relations with the kinetic boys in Iraq. We needed to maintain good, you know, comms with these guys. And we ended up really doing a really good job on my end. I think we did. Maybe good. we have some failures, clearly. So let's get back to like right now. Right. The global footprint on the war has changed. It's completely changed. We're, we've, we've become smart enough to know that we've been fighting proxy wars long enough that have been funded by the big boys, such as China, and I'll say it, China, Russia, and Iran. Yeah, yeah. To where the FID mission is extremely important now. We're going back to Cold War-esque shit in Poland and Latvia and shit like that. So 10th Group's like, huzzah, I learned Russian, and I've been in the <laughs> desert for the last 10 years. Now I'm back in Poland. I'm like, let's do this, boys. And we're just, yeah. just fucking do it. Let's do it. <laughs> let's get asymmetrics. So asymmetric, asymmetric warfare has now become the new lick. They're now going, there has to be a better option than the kinetic hammer that we've been used to. And it's been great, but it's ineffectual. We're not leaving anything behind, right? We're not leaving good feelings behind. Yeah. So the SVAB falls into this void where now the mission – so SVAB took over the mission in Colombia, right, That whatever that mission was from 7th Group. Well, that's because – and this is my opinion 
the main comms of special it's first special forces group command has been given a directive more than likely to start re reviewing and redoing and revamping guerrilla warfare going back to our roots of guerrilla asymmetric yeah. warfare sneaky Pete shit back you know back again you know, 18 Bravos are going to have to be a little bit more smarter and read bigger books than, you know, coloring books <laughs> to do their shit. You got to get more be- a little bit more better at what they do. Yeah, be better, better right? <laughs> <laughs> better. Loved having Derek on that episode. He's a great guy, great guest. And that was just a fun episode. You could tell uh, by us laughing during it. That was all very genuine because... Derek's a funny guy, and we will definitely have him back on soon. Before we get to this next guest, our newest sponsor, if you are someone into night vision and you want to check out a company that has great integrity and is being used by many guys in the special operations military and is trusted by guys like Chris Peranto, you got to check out Photonis Defense. Photonis Defense is the global leader in night vision solutions, providing more high-quality night vision capabilities than anyone. Hunters, shooters, boaters, and outdoor enthusiasts rely on Photonis defense systems to make their adventures safer and more successful. Military, law enforcement, and public safety end users utilize Photonis defense solutions to give them the edge at night in tactical situations and rescue operations. Photonis Defense is now offering state-of-the-art night vision systems. From the PD-Pro-B 16mm binocular and the PD-Pro-M 16mm monocular to the PD-Pro-Q panoramic night vision system, customers from all over are excited about these new smaller and lighter NVGs. You've got to see these things to really experience how much smaller and lighter they are than anything you have used previously. Now, we have the link in the description. Check it out. It's photonisdefense.com, and that's spelled P-H-O-T-O-N-I-S defense.com. Visit photonisdefense.com for more information or look for Photonis Defense product options from your night vision dealer. We love what they do, and once again, guys in the special operations military community have been using them and speak so highly of these lighter systems. Uh, With that, we're going to get over to the Navy, a guy that we had on episode 28, who you've heard on Joe Rogan before, who has the series coming out as well, the the on-screen adaptation of his series. You guys know who that is. None other than Navy SEAL Jack Carr from episode 28, here it is. Started at Team 5, enlisted, and uh, was a sniper there. And then uh, went to OCS, did three months of doing exactly what you do in boot camp, except you get yelled at by a Marine yeah, instructor <laughs> instead, instead of a Navy one. And uh, then right back to the SEAL teams, because somehow folding underwear and you know, T-shirts somehow qualifies you to lead me in battle. So right back to the SEAL teams. And then because I'd already gone through BUDS, already gone through SEAL qualification training, already done two deployments, one post 9-11, uh, it was right into the fight from there. So it was, uh, it was uh, if you were going to become an officer, it was a good... Dude, timing timing worked out. 
Um, so then I went SEAL Team 2 on the East Coast and then finished up my time as a troop commander at SEAL Team 7 uh, back on the West Coast. And then that's where I started writing during that last year when your job becomes to get out of the military after you drop your papers and you kind of go in that separate pile uh, and you go to dental and medical and get right out of secret programs and, you know, turn in your gear or whatever else you have to do. Uh, that's when I had some time. And so that's when I shifted to uh, to starting to write the first novel, The Terminal List. So that was, uh, it was a good run, but it was also uh, very evident that my family needed me. We have a special yeah. middle child who uh, oh, needs 24 wow. seven full-time care forever. Uh, and my wife had been dealing with uh, that through all the deployments and not just the deployments, but the whole workup where you're wow. a month in the desert doing desert warfare training. You're on a two week jump trip. You're on a couple week dive trip. You're, you know, doing mountain warfare, whatever you're doing to get ready for uh, that deployment. You know, she's back home dealing with uh, our middle child and dealing with everything else while I'm out there running around uh, doing the, doing the deed. So, uh, it was very evident after that last deployment to Iraq when I was a a troop commander, so an 04, which is a, a major in the other services, a lieutenant commander in the Navy. Yeah. And it was uh, it was time to, to shift focus and uh, get out and take care of my family. So it wasn't uh, wasn't something that I agonized over. And then knowing that I wanted to write from early age, I just knew the path that I was going to take. And you know, for whatever reason, I didn't waste any bandwidth worried about how hard it is to get published, kind of like I didn't worry about how hard it was to get to BUDS or get through BUDS, get through Hell Week, uh, get to the SEAL teams, get to wherever I deployed to, Ramadi, wherever else. I didn't never wasted bandwidth on how hard it was, how dangerous it was, whatever. Uh, I focused on being the best operator that I possibly could. And then before the Navy, I focused on the things I needed to do to get there, to prepare or what I, back then before the internet, uh, the things I thought I needed to do to prepare myself for buds, for SEAL training. Um, so same thing with writing. I never wasted any bandwidth on, oh, how hard is it to get published by a major publisher? How hard is it to get picked up, uh, uh, optioned for a film? Like none of that was part of my calculus. It was just like, okay, it's hard. Boom. All my bandwidth is now spent doing the job, preparing myself and making this the best book it can possibly be out of the gate. And in my mind, I always knew it's going to get picked up by Simon & Schuster. Emily Bessler at Simon & Schuster is going to be my editor. She's uh, She was Vince Flynn's editor. She's Brad Thor's editor. Uh, and I knew, oh, Chris Pratt's going to pick this up because he's the guy I want to play the part. <laughs> and, uh, and, and Anton Fuqua was going to direct because he uh, he did Shooter, he did Training Day, the Tears of the Sun, Equalizer, Magnificent Seven, awesome, awesome guy. And those are the only two people I thought of. And now, yep, yeah, picked up by Simon & Schuster, Chris Pratt playing the lead, <laughs> and Anton Fuqua directing it. So uh things can come full circle like that that's a, i didn't know that i didn't know you had a special needs son or i didn't know that you're yeah and that's amazing your wife I, brother uh, you know you, your warrior course and and coming from a ranger you know telling that to a seal that that hard that's hard for me to do i'm kidding bro <laughs> you know you know i'm fucking with you but but knowing your wife that is amazing man wives are amazing and she she's tremendous tell i hope she's listening if she when she does listen to this from me to her, she is the ultimate war. Wiser, what keep us keep us going? Wiser, what keeps the deployments going? We step back and finally get away from it, and we look back like, man, I really had it easy. I was the one that was deploying all the time. I didn't have to worry about the kids back home, and I didn't have to worry about the bills. I just had to make sure I didn't I didn't die and I came home. I mean, that's what I had to worry. That's that's it. One worry, and she's back home taking care of everything. You got a tremendous wife there, brother, and. uh Oh, man, I, I I can't believe that. I, that that's astounding to me because I didn't know that, and that I know how hard that is with keeping a relationship going, but also with your special needs son. And um, bro, how old is he now? If you don't mind me asking, I think you said it, and I might have missed it. I, forgive me, I'm getting old and senile. I'm almost fifty, so, <laughs> so, so I'm right behind you there. Yeah, uh, so no, he's 12 now. So we have a 14 year old daughter, 12 uh, year old son with the special needs, and then uh, wow, uh, the 
a nine-year-old as well. So he's right there in the middle. But a crazy wow. part of that is like we didn't know we were in the military. You know, so we knew when he was born something was something was uh, sure. off. Didn't quite know what it was. Uh, of course, military medicine. We're trying to figure it out. We tried to do some things on the private side too, going to Cedar Sinai up in L.A., trying to figure yeah. this out. And then seven years into it, um, after my last Iraq deployment, I get a call out of the blue from Ross Perot, who passed away this last summer. And uh, he sounded exactly like Dana Carvey impersonating <laughs> Ross Perot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, but someone I, uh, one of his financial advisors knew a friend of ours, and uh, he walked into to Mr. Perot's office and said, hey, sir, I think you want to you wanna hear this story, and hands him a printout of an email from our friend. And, and, uh, and Mr. Perot said, uh, get him on the phone. And so he calls me out of the blue and says they're going to put together a team of genetic specialists uh, at Southwestern Medical Center outside of Dallas, and they're going to fly us out there and uh, figure this out. And then he hangs up, and I'm like, whoa, what just happened? And uh, <laughs> an hour later, his lead doctor calls and said, uh, you know what? Hey, send us everything you have uh, on your son from Cedar sinai or from the military, anything else you've done, and we'll put this team together, and then we'll send the G550 out for you and try to fly you out here, and we'll see what we can do. And uh, sure enough, about a month later, they sent the G550 and uh, had a nurse on board for our son and we got on there and flew out and uh that's why the g550 is in my latest novel actually uh, oh, and then, uh, oh, wow. yeah landed and uh met mr pro and and uh he sure enough he had a team of genetic specialists there in dallas that figured this out they sent our blood all around the world and they found a uh researcher in the netherlands who had just discovered the specific genetic mutation and our son was the 13th in the world that they'd ever wow. died so this yeah so wow. Yeah, incredible. And I actually bring that into the, the second novel, True Believer. One of the uh, characters has a has a child with the uh, the same genetic uh, condition. So uh, once again, these things are all they're they're all they're fiction. They're 100 percent fiction. But there are personal elements in there. That, yeah, that, that well, resonates with people. You, you know, what's crazy is, I mean, I think for a lot of people, they just and, and you know, the media kind of spins things that one, you know, one person is known for one thing and that's it. And I think the general public just knows Ross Perot as the rich guy who ran for president and, you know, people say spoiled the election for Bush. Right. But when you hear a story like that, it tells me Ross Perot is a true patriot and cares about his fellow man, cares about veterans. Oh, yeah. And he did that for things like that for so many veterans out there, never seeking any recognition for it, um, but countless veterans he did things exactly like that for just an, an amazing guy i got to say hello to him again on my first book tour when i passed through dallas and he still had a picture of our son right there on his desk uh which was incredible just an, an amazing human being and uh people can go back and read ken follett's book called on wings of eagles uh which is about ross perot and getting some of his employees out of iran in 1979 um so just yeah an incredible story incredible patriot naval academy graduate and he's been uh since that time he's been just Connected to the military, uh, special operations in particular, uh, for for all of his life, really. So yeah, fantastic. I'll never be able to thank him or his family enough for what they did for us. That's just, bro. I, I'm I'm still at all. You you guys are you and your family have all my prayers and blessings, uh -huh. man. I, as much as like much as God allows me to give with all the mistakes I've made in my life, man. But I I tell you what, I I'm impressed, uh, even more impressed with you now. And I I how is it? You're saying, with him and and what can you tell me what does it do I, i'm i'm curious and i just ask questions because i am curious yeah with with his with his with his ailment what does that cause what is it what does he what can he do i mean always i know he's got he's like his daddy he can do anything and i know you pushed him that way but are things that, that he can't do that he has problems with and and how do you overcome those as a father 
how do you overcome and how do you help? Because you are, you're a tremendously positive individual. That's why you're successful. How do you do that as a father? And all you listeners out there that may have special needs children, listen, listen to, uh, listen to, to Jack here and let him tell you how he's, he's helped, helped and continue to make a positive difference in his son's life. And I want to know, because uh, you know, I have a four-year-old, a 15-year-old, and I'm always trying to be a better father as well. So what do you do? What, what aspects do you, how do you, how do you teach? How do you train? How do you train? I'm not trained. Yeah, yeah, no, I get it. But, but can, can you, can you go into that a little bit if you don't mind? If it's too difficult, I yeah. understand, but I, I don't No, Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, it manifests itself as a global developmental disability, meaning um, and there's not that many people out there. Obviously, he's the 13th. I'm guessing they're up to about 100 now. But uh, but there wasn't there's not that there's not that big of a pool to study. Um, But it manifests itself as a global developmental disability, meaning he's smaller physically, um, uh, mentally, uh, probably maybe like a two year old, maybe. Um, And, you know, so he'll need help eating, uh, going to the bathroom, uh, get zipped into the special uh, bed every night. Uh, So, yeah, it's it's I mean, you need someone right there on him every single second. So I'm in my office right now doing this. And on the other side of these doors in my office, my wife is out there with him right now, um, just making sure that he's he's safe uh, and uh, he's getting fed and all the rest of it. But he's a sweet little guy. He also makes little jokes. Uh, So, yeah, he he, like if if he met you, he did. uh, We we said your name. He'd put a a Z on the the front of it and then he'd just start cracking up. So he has these little jokes that he does. Awesome. Uh, he's on his iPad a lot and he gets, yeah. uh, he looks at all these different languages. And so it's, it's, it's kind of a mystery, like what his brain is really doing in there. Um, but he's a sweet little guy. He makes jokes. He just needs help doing everything forever. So that's kind of how it manifests itself. Um, but, uh, yeah, for us, I would look at it like, you know, we have to look at it in a, you know, Hey, we were given him for a reason. It has to be that we're strong enough to, to handle it and to ha- uh, that condition and to help him reach his full potential, whatever that may be. Like that's our mission in life. Uh, but there's also the other side, which is raising the other two kids so that their childhoods aren't solely defined by their brother's condition. Because okay. uh, sure. when you're solely focused on when you have someone that needs to be taken care of, who's 12, that needs to be taken care of like this, uh, you know, you can. Um, I, I can see uh, that if you had two other kids, it would be very easy for them to feel like you're you're always focused on the special needs child. Um, so knowing that, um, we take steps to ensure that we get out there and we do things um, with the other kids and uh, look at it as, hey, you, we are all in this as a family. We're in this as a team. And uh, he is sandwiched between two amazing other kids. And there's a reason for that. Uh, so hopefully it makes us all stronger. Hopefully it makes the other kids, well, us as a family, uh, more sure. loving, more compassionate, more understanding uh, going forward. So that's yeah. uh, so we just, you know, it's just the kind of the cars we're dealt and you got to play them the best you can, just like anybody else. No, it sounds like it's grown you as an individual as yeah. well. Uh, I, I want to get into the book itself because Savage Son getting high praise from Joe Rogan in itself is huge. Uh, I'd love to hear about where you got the uh, idea from the CIA versus Navy SEAL uh, narrative. And, and also if people are wondering if they didn't pick up the terminal list, should they start with Savage Son? Should they start with the first book? Uh, what would you recommend? 
Yeah, Joe started with a third one. Um, so I, I, I always like to read things in order, but oftentimes I do discover a series mid-series and I'm like, oh, this is amazing. And then I go back and I start at the beginning. So uh, I'm guessing other people are like that as well. But there's only three books now, so you can go back and uh, and grab the first novel and don't have too much to read to get to the latest one, Savage Son. But interestingly enough, uh, <laughs> Amazon picked it up and guess who's out of books? <laughs> Amazon. Amazon. Right? No, oh, no. Like, like it's good Well, I guess you never know. I mean, we talk about it in terms of it being a good problem to have but then you know how many books did they have how many books did they have exactly <laughs> you know, that's right that's what i was gonna say because i we and I, I remember uh books a million ran out of books once but you know it was like yeah well that's fantastic but they only bought 200 books right so so i like well not really because i mean why they only so now i get it but so that's it's well, we're gonna stay positive though we're gonna say that's a good thing that they had that's ten thousand right. books there. and that's they went right. the first week books. let's just stay yeah. positive they're out of books yeah so they're out of the first one they're out of the terminal list uh and i think they're out of the hardback true believer also but, but you uh, can still do uh the audible right and uh, yeah audible Audible just made the New York Times list. Audible list. They have a special one. Uh, yeah. One. They have an Audible list. So that just yeah, made yeah. that it's great. Uh, Ray Porter is the narrator who just knocks it out of the park. He's fantastic. The first book, audio, was up for audiobook of the year. So it was crazy being back there in New York, putting on the tux, and uh, seeing the book up there next to right. Stephen King. Like crazy. Totally <laughs> that crazy. is. That's and, awesome. Uh, but uh, but where these came from, um, particularly the second book, if we're talking CIA specific, uh, the second one, True Believer, was inspired by something that happened to me in Iraq in 2006, where I was working for what can uh, can best be described as a covert action unit attached to another government agency out there. Sure, sure. Uh, so you're working with indigenous forces <laughs> type thing, and uh, I was the only military attached to it. We had a bunch of, uh, of course, uh, other government agency people that were doing most of the work, and my job was to deconflict battle space, do uh, uh, tactical communications uh, uh, in yeah. tar that sort of thing. Yep. Uh, so during that time, we had one guy uh, from the indigenous side of the house who was like head and shoulders above his peers. He was a squadron commander uh, for this sovereign Iraqi unit. And he, yeah, his English was amazing. Uh, I mean, he, he looked like he was out of central casting. He could do the close, <laughs> he could do the close target recce stuff, you know, bring back that. Wow. Uh, and but most importantly, he could make decisions under fire, um, which was unique. Um, I don't know if that's your experience as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's hard. They, a lot it, of those uh, people that we work with, because in a lot of those countries, making uh, decisions under fire, deviating from the plan, taking risk, if it doesn't work out, wasn't necessarily rewarded if it didn't work out. Yeah, it wasn't it, like Let's learn from our mistakes and move forward. It was kind of like, OK, off with your head, off with your hand, or something really, like yeah. that. <laughs> So, uh, but it wasn't it wasn't conducive to a good good learning environment at all. No, That's it wasn't right. conducive no. at all. Not yeah. at all. You didn't encourage them to take risks on the battlefield and adapt. <laughs> but this guy, he did. Uh, so that made him stand out to me. He was a great guy. Got to know him. And then years later, through the grapevine, I found out that he disappeared. And I was like, hmm, interesting. Uh -oh. What if I was to take this and to fictionalize it and to have him disappear because he was upset that we left at the end, end of 2011 yeah. Yeah. and maybe something happens to his family. Uh, maybe he works his way with uh, refugees up into Europe and maybe he takes those skills that he was taught by the U.S. military and other government agencies and uses those now against the Western world. So that kind of laid the foundation for what happens in my second novel, True Believer. So uh, to answer your question, Ian, some of that came from, from real world. Of course, it's all fictionalized, but it's inspired by things sure. that have happened. 
me along my path. So, um, so that's really where that uh, comes from. And then also the, the continuing theme of dealing with politicians and senior CIA officials that are uh, uh, not necessarily the uh, that are the, on the antagonist side of the house. I'll say, uh, you know, it's, it's not that hard to make a politician see me evil or uh, a senior <laughs> CIA bureaucrat you know, see me evil. Like it's kind of uh, yeah, they're kind of fodder for that sort of thing because there's so many examples of, uh, of that disconnect sure. between that level and the guys that are doing it on the ground at the tactical level it's it's funny because it's true that's all i'm laughing so hard it's funny because it's true <laughs> and and you know with with the you know the the your guy that inspired you that's quite possible too i again because you don't find that often you don't find honestly uh an indigenous especially iraqi and i found that more so with iraqis than with the afghanis and maybe my experience was different because we worked a lot with the nds guys there in Afghanistan. And for those that are NDS or like they're kind of their CIA people when we were in Afghanistan, Iraqi, but you did find that in Iraq more. So when you found somebody that was capable, it, my, my first thing was, gosh, did, was he trained by somebody else? Cause obviously <laughs> wasn't here. Who's, who's been getting trained by, was it our people or was he getting trained by, you know, the Iranian, the, the Iranian forces, or did he get his training by the Chechnya for you? Know, what, what's going on? So there always was the, 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 uh, the, the spider senses went up. But that being said, you know, you never knew because I, I never knew what happened to once once we leave is like, well, I, I really don't know what's going on. You know, it's not my problem. And I, I hate to say, it, but that's what you do. You come back. It's not my problem anymore. For, and, and you feel that way with with the locals until you get more time in when your first time is like, well, I'm just trying to do my job. So um, to, to, to have that and that book, just let you guys know out there reading the books, man, just think of it that way. It's, it's quite possible that could happen. That's why you're tremendous writer when me and Ian were talking about this at the beginning of the show like that's why your books are so good is because you can pull the stuff that could have happened and it sounds it, you stop you talk the lingo you've been there you've done that it sounds correct it's not totally outlandish that you have some guy reading a book even though you know it's fiction especially that's been down range and says man that shit could never happen where yours right. is like yeah this could happen and it's so outlandish but you know it, you're like, wait, wait a second, wait, that, that's possible? Yeah, actually it is. And, and I know you write it in such a way that it comes across that way. So I, what I'm saying to guys is, is you have read, read Jack's books. And when you read them, they are fiction, but maybe not. I'm not saying they aren't. I, I don't want to get you in trouble, but they are fiction. But he, but it's it's possible because the world is such a crazy-ass place and politicians are such just – my. I'm saying this, Jack is not. I am saying this politicians are dirty motherfuckers <laughs> so, <laughs> so but i i that's why again fantastic and i i want people to read your stuff because and and there and it's it's entertaining and again you have that personal experiences that you aren't getting super crazy with your write-offs write-ups that there's no way that could happen like you're not bending bullets and shit like that you're, you're <laughs> right, you're right so but but it's, it's great to hear and I, I i know i'm thinking when you're talking right then just like man memories just coming yeah. back and and it's it, it's making me smile and feel good so i appreciate i just appreciate the conversation with you right now man thanks oh man i appreciate that and you know i get asked quite a bit there people ask me hey what is uh like you know what movies are realistic or hey, <laughs> do you ever miss it you know they ask that they ask what's realistic and then they ask you know do you ever miss being in the seal teams do you miss going down range that sort of thing and you know i know a lot of people say you know i miss the guys or i miss the mission or i miss you know you know whatever um and for me i flipped that switch you know i was like i did that I, that was something i did and now i have 
flip that switch and this is what I do. And that past informs what I do going forward. Hopefully it makes me a better citizen. Hopefully it makes me a better father, better husband, better writer. Um, but that's what I did and this is what I do. So I made that clear distinction. But I bring that up because the only movie that made me for half a second want to get back into it was 13 hours. Um, yeah, I went up to LA and saw a pre-screening of it, and I was on the, what, it was a Paramount lot or whatever. The, Par- anyway, it was Paramount. Paramount yeah, 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 so I went to Paramount lot and watched it, and I was, for like half a second when I was walking out of that theater, that was the one. And I think it's because of that time in Iraq in 2006, working with that other government agency. Yeah. And yeah. have such a, just, just in a, such a visceral experience and just such a, <laughs> it was just such a highlight of my time in uniform. Um, but I think that's why. But that was the, that's the only one. That's the one I always always recommend and point to uh, when people ask me those those couple questions I, I i appreciate that and that's a, we we wanted we were on set we were made sure things were good we we spent time right helping write it we wanted to make sure and that's what we were wanted to tell and i i was a little skeptical with michael bay i'm like michael bay are you kidding me come on and we met but then we met him and like the dude is awesome love that guy and he loves and i i, I was a little jealous out of all the special com community guys he loves seals the best so <laughs> there you go again but he loves it but you know he, he he uses all the special operations guys in his movies all the extras but it was he, he wanted to make sure it was right and we wanted to make sure that dynamic was right and we want to make sure the colors and think because people most war movies are so drab you know and i get it iraq's dirty Parts of Afghanistan, if you're in southern Afghanistan, they're dirty. There's dirt. But it's really not. And I, I think and I maybe expound on this a little bit because uh, my opinion and when I was whenever stuff started happening, whenever the adrenaline started kicking up, the colors resonated. Things opened up. It wasn't just, God, this is a dirty ass play. It's like, man, things just those colors were and, and the and the uh, and the uh, everything around you were so vivid and intense. And, and the dynamics between us and the CIA were so well, it was just like you saw in the movie. It was, it wasn't always nice, but you just saw it. Just it just it just was spot on. And, and I'm glad you said that because we we did take a lot of time to get that done. And I remember Tig also warning Michael Bay if he got it wrong. This was in Bay Studios. The first thing he said to Michael was, "Hey man, if you get this wrong, we're going to waterboard the shit out you." And I remember looking like, "Tig, did you just say that to Michael Bay?" But yeah, I, I, I'm, I, I'm like negative motivation. Yeah, negative. Yeah. Motivation. <laughs> that's like, geez, that's Tig for you. But I, I do just and don't you know we, we got want to talk about a little bit more but I do want you if you could you know I, I know you've done some hits I know you've done plenty of them when you have and you've also sat in the jock and you've watched teams that you guys that you've gone on hits with and you've had to watch them from afar which is even more difficult because I know you wanted to get in there with them after but that's why you're in the jock because you've already been there and done that you need to lead troops from there and coordinate so you're two steps ahead of the game but um when you were doing it, did did you feel the same when you were about ready to enter a room or when you're going into an area that were hot was hot? Did did you feel that sense of man blinders are off like that racehorse? The blinders are off and I'm really taking it all in or was it just a blur to you? And I, I wanted to get into that a little bit because young guys will ask that to me a lot. And I just said what I think. But I, I that's my opinion. So I, I want because we have a lot, a lot of young listeners that are thinking about the military as well. Um and and they want to hear that stuff, and I think they should hear it. Not to not to uh, not to romanticize it because war's hell, people die. But just so they know, and, and can you maybe a little bit, maybe about a hit you did, and don't have to get it. I don't want you to violate your national security clearances or anything, but just how your feeling was. You know, what did you feel? How did that go? 
Yeah, and, and I want, I'm always uh, not hesitant, but I'm always thoughtful about it, knowing what time does to memory and yeah, uh, yeah, how it yeah. tends to make it a little rosier than yeah. it was, <laughs> yeah. or you know, those, those things that are just natural for uh, for all humans, regardless of what their past was or what their experience was or what they did before was. Uh, like right now, looking back, you know, Buzz wasn't that bad. Hell Week, you know, hey, it wasn't that bad. <laughs> you know, but in it, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I don't, when I was in it, I think it was awful, probably. But uh, so there is that to contend with as well but what i remember the most is just a distinct focus um there it is yeah of uh being responsible for those guys particularly i mean i felt it as an enlisted guy i felt it as an officer uh so that didn't really change i just i guess i felt it more uh the more people uh i had depending on sure yeah my decisions um but it was an intense focus and i particularly remember uh ramadi 2006 2005 when the i really started to come into yeah. the enforce I mean, they, they came in earlier obviously 2004 but but they really enforce uh as a tactical weapon with of strategic importance um because of uh what it did to support for the effort uh yeah. on the public side of the house back here but uh every time you left the gate you could look at anything as an id whether it was yeah dead donkey or a piece of trash or, you know, just a pothole, whatever it was, uh, you could spend your time worried about that uh, and just solely focused on that. Well, guess what? My bandwidth then is not focused on the mission. It isn't focused on being situationally aware enough to know what's going on so that when the bullets started flying or something did happen, that uh, it would take away from me being able to adapt the best I could to whatever was happening to that particular situation. So well, when you ask that question, I think most about focus and being there, putting that uh, that charge on the wall on the door whatever it is uh, you know backing up a little bit and just remember that, like that second before it goes off and just that intense focus that comes with uh, with knowing what's going to happen like up until that point getting to and from the target anything can happen but right there you're making it happen once you put that charge on the door and go in so it's uh it's an intense focus is what I would say is what I remember uh, the most uh, uh, I, thanks bro I, I, I appreciate you doing that and, and at least letting all youngsters out there just prepare yourselves prepare yourself for what you're going to get into and, and listen to guys like Jack he, he's, he's going to tell you the truth from uh, and that you have both perspectives the enlisted and the officer perspective I hope that you were enjoying this best of episode. Loved having Jack Carr on. What an honor to have him on. And another guy we would love to have return to the podcast. Before we get to our next guest, another sponsor who's been keeping us going since day one is Fort Scott Munitions. Now, if you're a hunter, you're a shooter, uh, you just like going to the range or you need some great home defense ammo, this is who you got to go with. Fort Scott Munitions is a manufacturer of multi-federal patented solid copper and brass CNC spun ammunition. It's designed to tumble upon impact in soft tissue, leaving devastating wound channels for faster bleed out and quicker incapacitation. This ammunition was originally developed to innovate and improve on the standard of military-grade ammunition design. It was found that not only did the TUI ammunition outperform competitors in the self-defense industry, but it quickly became apparent that it would be a top contender for hunters alike. With the ammo being CNC-spun, the tolerances are some of the tightest on the market, ensuring that you receive the same results every time you pull that trigger. Fort Scott Munitions is available throughout privately owned businesses in all 50 states. Just go to the dealer locator on the website, and that's at fortscottmunitions.com. The link to that is in the description. And additionally, you'll get 
15% off your order of their great merchandise when you use the promo code BATTLELINE. That's an exclusive promo code for listeners of the podcast, and it helps to show your support for the show. So, yeah, go there right now, fortscottmunitions.com. Use the promo code BATTLELINE, and you're going to get 15% off your order. Fort Scott Munitions is a proud supporter of Chris Peranto, Battleline Tactical, and the Battleline Podcast, and tons of special operations military guys are shooting with Fort Scott Munitions. So with that, we've represented the Army, we've represented the Navy, and we got to get an Air Force PJ in there, of course. None other than Scott Gearin talking about a near-death experience and then what he would describe as an extraterrestrial experience. Check it out. The full episode is on episode 62. I was assigned to the SEAL team in Virginia. Uh, we did a rotation up there for the alert package. And we were, mm-hmm. we were allowed to train in the local area. Anything else we couldn't leave unless, unless there was an alert that we were launched on, such as, say, the Achille Lauro, which was a long time ago. But... Um, so in the local area, we could do some training. And I get one of the things I always think of with this is you never know how the choices you make today will impact your tomorrows. Maybe it's the, the next day or 25 or 30 or 40 years later or at some point in your life, right? So this, all these chain of events have impacted me in different ways, but certainly to save my life. So. We were doing a team training, you know how in a, in, a, in a group of individuals, everybody has different skills, and mine was the paramedic. So the team I was with, on Monday, on Tuesday, we were doing a train-up. I was doing medical training for the team, how to stop the bleeding, traumatic bleeding, and how to open airways and emergency airways. And, you know, we practiced with little yeah. pictures out of, a, out of a anatomy book, and we'd put a, a pictures of a throat on a styrofoam cup and we'd feel each other's throats and then we'd make that landmark connection and what it looked like and we'd poke a little knife through the styrofoam cup just as we were simulating with somebody that needed an airway emergency airway and so this was on a tuesday the next day we were doing our free fall training jump and i remember driving out to the uh the drop zone and stopping on the way, getting coffee and donuts and stuff, you know, good health food and getting to the drop zone. We jumped out of a Marine uh, helicopter, uh, H, uh, 47. Um, and, uh, that's about where I, my memory, mm-hmm. uh, conscious memory stops at that point until about three days later, so we we jumped out of the we jumped out of the airplane. We did our, our training, our dirt dive on the ground, and then we we went up to thirteen thousand feet. We jumped out. We we're free falling, which I don't remember any of this. Uh, I can recount what happened based on eyewitnesses of what they saw and what they did. And so our plan was at thirty five hundred feet, based on our altimeters and how we were falling. We would deploy our parachutes, which is what I did. It was my 90th free fall. I was very comfortable in the air. I loved it. I'd been through Air Force Academy jump school. I'd been through the Army Special Forces free fall school and had about 50 
uh, 60 more jumps, somewhere in there, whatever, equals to 90 with that training schools and then um, out in the field. But I just felt comfortable. And so at 3,500 feet, uh, pulled my uh, parachute deployment handle, opened the parachute open. And I'm sure at that point, lights went out for me because uh, there was another jumper above me still in free fall. And he saw my canopy open and he realized he couldn't avoid hitting me. He's balled up in a, a cannonball type position. And at that point, he's traveling in excess of 120 miles per hour, came through the canopy, uh, destroyed the canopy, knocked me unconscious, I'm sure. And then I went the rest of the way to the ground with a streamer parachute behind me. Uh, so about 3,000 feet estimated hit the ground at about 100 miles an hour. Wow. Um, wow. The first guys to me were uh, SEALs, Bobby uh, and David. Uh, they were under the under canopy and their own canopies and they saw that I was having a problem so they steered their parachutes and they landed uh, where I was which was not a total wooded area but a shrub small tree area and they um, you know got to me and I was unconscious uh, on my back uh, kind of convulsing. I was full of blood. I wasn't breathing. And so it was kind of, you know, the, the day prior, these guys had training on exactly what to do. And they maintained my neck stabilization. They poured me over. I remember Bobby saying, man, it looked like a gallon of blood poured out of your mouth. And then I started gasping. I knew I was still alive. <laughs> And about that time, other guys start coming in. The other medic, the other uh, paramedic, we were rotating our jumps. We all didn't have a, a medic on the drop zone, Larry Yakamoto. Uh, and those guys got in there. And so then they made a makeshift litter with a poncho and branches. And like the helicopter didn't have a hoist. About the, It took about an hour to get me to an opening for a, actually a, a civilian life flight came in and picked me up and took me to uh, Portsmouth Naval Hospital. And I was in the ICU and that's, you know, that's when they did a cricothyroidotomy and other uh, procedures and the tubes and everything down my throat and, and on my face and head and everything was swollen. And, and I couldn't talk, couldn't see, went into about uh, probably another 24, 38 hours before I, was kind of coming to, I guess. And I, I, I remember at that point, um, I was afraid that I was blind and, and I would never be able to do my job again. And somebody, uh, Mike put a pencil or a pen in my hand and a pad of paper. And I wrote a question, am I blind? Kind of, it wasn't very neatly written. I still have those papers. And, uh, the doctor said, no, you're not blind. And I remember that he pushed each eyelid up separately and shined a light in and said, can you see that? And I said, I kind of, yes. And uh, I don't even know how I said yes, but whatever it was. I, and then I, I wrote, maybe I wrote yes. I don't quite remember that. Then I wrote, because I couldn't move. I thought my neck was broken. I think, well, if my neck's broken. I'm not going to be able to go back and do my job either. And I wrote, is my neck broken? 
And he said, no, your neck's not broken. And uh, after that point, it was just a feeling came over me. I, I knew that I was going to be all right. I was in the best care possible and that they were going to take care of me and I was going to get well. And one day I was going to get to do my job again. So from the time I jumped driving to the flight lot for the drop zone to that point, I was in the unconscious, in and out of conscious state. But I have a very clear memory of, of a, a near-death experience. Most people, like you said, a white light experience in there. And it's just clear today as it was, you know, in that time, 40 years ago, not 40, 30 years ago. So I, I had the experience kind of started where I, I didn't know at the time I had been injured. I just knew something had happened. But I was, it was the most peaceful feeling you could ever imagine. It was, um, and I was surrounded by that, that light, that white light. And I, I look at it now, being surrounded, if you can imagine, a 40-watt level light bulb, and that's completely surrounded me. And I, I realized now that, that that was energy and it was love. And it just made me feel it was just such a great, great feeling. And I was I was moving. I knew I was leaving. I could see my body was damaged and had been injured. And I didn't know what it was, and it didn't even enter my mind. It was just like my mind, the conscious side of it was just the same as it was um, prior to the accident, only I was not in my body. And I was I knew I was leaving it. And then over a certain over my shoulder area was a very, very bright area, like that hundred watt bulb area. And I was going to that light. It wasn't like a tunnel, but it was just a very bright area. And standing in front of the light were three figures. And I I don't know who they were. I didn't and we were telepathically kind of communicating. They were welcoming me. And I was I was going to them, but my consciousness, my soul was going to them. And I got almost to them and I was I was thinking, I'm gonna be able to see who this is now. And right on the edge of that I heard the voices that it's time to go now. Very deep, very clear, very distinct. It's time to go now. And at that point, many thoughts went through my head and realized the choices that people have to you know, just to be their best, to do good, what's going on in life, whatever, all the different thoughts I had. And I I said, I'm not ready to go yet. And I turned my head away from the bright area. And that was the last thing I remember uh, during that time period. And then I, I kind of was coming to in the hospital and then just the procedures that carried on for the next uh, three months in the hospital and then the other surgeries over the next uh, 15 months until I was cleared for uh, jumping and being back in the terrorist camp. So. Wow. That's why I say that. That's, dude, that is amazing. And yeah, I, I know you wrote about it. I know we put it. Is it? <laughs> wow, man. Um, yeah, I, I, we, and we won't get, because I want to get into some other stuff. So does Ian. But uh, just all that and just amazing how, you know, that story, because I, I believe in that and I believe that that that's what happens. I, I do. I, and 
Um, you know, you, 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 you verify it for me, which is amazing. And, and the ability to make a choice, say, Hey, you know, I'm not ready to go and come back to your body, knowing that you're going to go through a lot of pain and a lot of suffering to me is that's just intestinal fortitude. That's courage, brother. And you, and you got it. Obviously you got it. And then, uh, then the ability to go back in and, you know, with your throat, having the scar tissue, cause you have to hit and that we didn't even get into that. And I get, we don't need to, we'll, we'll let, we'll save that for people that want to read, read your story, which I, I want them to, but the stuff you went through just to get back in um, and, and you did it and you chose to do it. You, you, you turned away from the light, which to, to me, it just gives me chills. Yeah. That's, that's freaking amazing. Um, yeah, Ian, you got anything, brother? I know I'm, I'm over talking you again because I, I love Scott's no, story. It is, I think Scott's story make just incredible for sure. No, and I know that we're limited on time because there's so much to talk about his career. And I would love to get into you know what you did in Europe, what you did during Desert Storm, and maybe we'll another time. Um, but I, I know, as Chris said, we want to get into your book that you wrote just recently hiding in plain sight, documenting UFOs with some photographic evidence. Where did this all begin? Did you have, I mean, beyond this paranormal experience, did you have a UFO encounter of some uh, sort? Actually, I did. I, that's one I don't talk about, and it's not in the book. Uh, but, you know, back just before we begin that side of it, um, you know, when you said, what, Chris, what you said, uh, one of the things that became evident, more evident to me, because of that experience was our choices. We have choices, everybody has choices, and that's the consciousness, our, our, our mental capacity as humans, and, and what we have, we all have choices, and, and our, uh, the, our, um, our life is impacted by the choices we make, so, you know, make good choices. But yeah, the uh, the book um, "Hiding in Plain Sight" um, is I, I think it's the only one like it out there with the pictures that I have in there. Uh, so not not to get into the incident that I had that's not in the book, but um, I was in Florida doing a, a speaking presentation last year, and while I was Last year, I had a goal to do 100,000 push-ups for the year, and I was I was making that goal by doing approximately 2,000 push-ups a week. And I, I mostly did. I thought, okay, if I do Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, and I do 500 on each of those days, then I'll have good rest time for on Wednesday and the weekends. And and that's the schedule I tried to stick with. I, I had to vary it a couple of times for different things, but I did make a hundred thousand push-ups in, in the year. And those are pretty well documented on my on my Instagram account. I kept oh, awesome. good track of those and, and put them out there. But while I was in Florida and I, I had to do my push-ups that day that I was doing that speech that evening, that presentation. And so I I um you know, like a good Boy Scout, which I wasn't a Boy Scout, but, uh, you know, they always the motto to be prepared. And so I always, be prepared. So I, I always thought, well, you know, people always say they see UFOs or they have a blurry picture or all they can do is draw what they saw or, or say or tell about it. And I thought, well, if it's going to happen to me, I know it is. And I'm going to have a camera. And 
luckily that day being prepared, I had a camera with me with a, a nice telephoto lens, not thinking I was going to see anything. So I started doing my push-ups. I'm on the balcony and I saw this like bright area in the, in the sky way out in the distance, but it still caught my attention. And, you know, I guess maybe because of my connections to the military and the air force and my natural curiosity, I, I saw the bright light in the sky and I, I looked at it, it was like, it goes, what is that? Is it an airplane? And I, I realized, no, it's not moving. It's stationary. It's not a jet, not an airplane. And I thought, well, it must be a helicopter, you know, that's hovering out there. I watched it for a few minutes and I, I just, I realized that that's not, that it's characteristics. It's not a helicopter. I don't know what it is. So I started taking pictures. I took pictures with my phone. I took videos with my phone. Then I started taking pictures with my uh, my camera and zooming in on my telephoto lens. So I take about ten or fifteen pictures, and I I you know zoom in on it, and it was still a, a small little dot. I couldn't really tell what it was, and I didn't take my camera, didn't take the time to to look at each picture and zoom in and see if I was getting anything. I just oh, I'll take some pictures. Then I said I did a set of push-ups. I do fifty push-ups. I went, oh, it's still there. So I take some more pictures and I do 50 more push-ups. And I oh, it's still there. I take some more pictures. So this went on for, you know, the whole time I did my 500 push-ups. I was well, still there, but I got to get going. I take some more pictures and I jumped in the shower. I took a shower and I look back, oh, well, it's, it's still out there. It's moving around a little bit, but it's it's really weird. Sometimes I can't see it. During that time period, I realized that I could only see it at certain times with my polarized sunglasses. So when I would look through my sunglasses, I could see it. I'd lift them up onto my forehead. I couldn't see the object. I put it down. I could see it. My sunglasses, I lift it up. I couldn't see it. But I, was still, but I said, well, I, I don't know if it's going to be picked up by my camera or not. But I continued to take pictures with it. And actually, during that time, I did pick it up a couple of times. So I've got a series of pictures that I I put in the book. So at first, when I went back up well, before the book, so I took all these pictures. Then I said, well, I got to go. The thing's out of sight now. Put my camera away. And I went and did my event. And then about two weeks later, I'm back home. I downloaded them on a laptop. And I started enlarging and zooming in. And when I saw the object, it scared me. Like, I've never seen anything like it. I don't know what it is. It's not a normal aircraft of any type I've ever seen. And it, it's, it scared me. So I didn't know what it was. And I didn't. And I'm thinking, well, maybe it's a gun. And by the way, I should say it, it, it takes a lot. Yeah. I was just going to say, it's got to take a lot to scare a guy who's falling 3,500 feet out. <laughs> yeah. Like that, that, that's, that's that's scared you. Yeah. Oh, Lord, man. I bet I, I love to see these pictures. I got to, I definitely got, just got, I got to get the book. I got to get you because I, now, because I, I haven't seen him yet. Now I'm just, uh, oh my God. Just I go, see go, pictures. Like, go to Amazon oh yeah. and just read the reviews and look at the one picture on the cover. And uh, so, anyway, so I, I looked at the pictures and I thought I, I said, well, that's what scared me. And I'm thinking it must be a government project. And I don't want to, you know, be in my, that I had had a secret clearance and a top secret clearance. 
and a great, you know, my, I feel like I'm a, a citizen, a patriot, uh, uphold the Constitution. You know, we took the same oath to uh, defend the Constitution from all enemies, both yeah. foreign and domestic. And, you know, I think yep. about that still. And so I thought, well, I don't want to just put these pictures out there if it's a, something secret that our government's doing and anybody else can see it. So I, I connected with a military connection. And I said, hey, could you have somebody look at these pictures? So they did. They sent them to an analyst, a military analyst. And about three weeks later, I'm like, I'm chopping at the bit. What what they say? What they say? So they contacted them and they, and they said, well, they, they said they don't know what it is. Now, this is a military trained animus, analyst. They said they don't know what it is. And they're going to send the pictures to another government agency that has better capability to analyze these pictures. I don't know. I don't know the analyst and I don't know what agency they sent them to. So I said, okay, great. I want to find out what it is. And if, if it's something super ultra top secret, they can have them and I'll never mention it again. Right. You take those uh, agreements that you sign. You don't talk about the things you did. So I thought, okay. So about three yeah. weeks later, Again, I'm like, hey, what they say? What they say? I said, well, I haven't. My my friend said, well, I haven't heard from them. I said, well, hey, call them, ask them. So, I went by another week or so. They 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 finally get the word. I said, what did they say? And they said, well, they said it's a weather balloon and an anomaly of your camera. And right then, I knew that was BS because it was a brand new camera. I've taken thousands of pictures. <laughs> I take pictures. Of airplanes that are thirty thousand feet high, and I can read the insignias on them. I can tell what airplanes that it is by whether it's military, civilian. I can see, you know, I can see the company name on the airplane. I said, well, you know, my camera's working good. I took thousands before and thousands after. I took pictures directly at the sun. The sun looks like the sun. Airplanes look like airplanes. There's never been an anomaly. So I said, well, now I know that. It's something. So I made a report to a UFO organization. Uh, I actually made it uh, to two different UFO organizations. One, uh, the organizations, they published a, that report out there. And I didn't realize that that report was going to be public knowledge and anybody could look at it. And I submitted one picture with it because the, one of the websites said anything you submit is ours and you no longer have rights to it. And I said, well, I'm not going to submit all my pictures to somebody and they're going to have rights to everything. So I, I, but I did submit one picture and then I find out that picture has been picked up and that report is all over the internet. One organization out of England that put it on their website, they called it the best, the greatest crypto creature capture ever. They think it's alive. And when you see these pictures, you might even have that thought that it, it might be something that's alive. And so then I started thinking, well, that's pretty crazy, but I never thought about that. But then I think, well, it's this, the air that we breathe is another element, just like the water is an element. So what if that, what is above, you know, um, 100,000 feet, what's 10 miles in space? You know, we, we only live in a small ring around this earth of about you know sea level to three miles up and we don't know what's really out there but just like we find creatures that we call alien you know that are that are eight miles deep in the ocean 
We never go there. We don't live there. What's what's swimming in space, which is another element that maybe another creature's in. So anyway, when you look at these pictures, you will realize that it is next level technology, whatever it is, whether it's alive or whether it's extraterrestrial technology. And what if, the, you know, when you think uh, foreign technology and you think other nations, well, what about foreign being extraterrestrial technology? Maybe, maybe it is. You know, an anonymous source looked at the pictures other than the Air Force and that other person, that other agency, and that's exactly what they told me. And that's one of the, the anonymous, I didn't say their name on there, but they are connected to uh, other events and other agencies. And they said that in their opinion, uh, it is uh, extraterrestrial in nature, the technology, the government may or may not be involved. They didn't know for sure. And um, when you see these pictures, the, the thing is, it goes from the one picture that I submitted uh, online over the course of 100 pictures. And I'm taking pictures every couple of seconds. It changes shape. It changes color. It, it disappears and it reappears. And, you know, you've seen people... Uh, you've seen pictures that have been submitted by people. They might have one picture, and then it's blurry, and then it's gone. These, this is a sequence of, yes. in, in my book, Hiding in Plain Sight, is a sequence of 50 pictures that I put in there. And you can see I, the metadata. I submitted these pictures to a scientific organization uh, in, a, in Huntsville, Alabama, They've had them for several months and they're analyzing them. And I said, hey, I don't have anything to, to hide. I, I'm not uh, making this up. I'm not I'm not a photo editor. I haven't photoshopped anything. These pictures are 100 percent real and you can look at them. And so I sent them original pictures. They can look at it. They've looked at all the metadata. They've reached back to me and asked me a couple of questions, but they haven't. Uh, come forward with what this what they think it is um, but it is uh it, it is really uh and nobody's identified it yet so it is a, a ufo an unidentified flying object and when you see the pictures you can go to amazon and just look at the uh the cover picture and and, and the reviews on what's been said and you will see that it is uh <laughs> it's amazing Scott Guerin is most definitely a legend in the community, and you can read a lot more about him, not necessarily the extraterrestrial stuff, but the near-death experience and Scott's service in, uh, in Chris's latest book, The Patriot's Creed. If you still have not picked up The Patriot's Creed, it's got stories in there about Alwyn Cash, who we know is going to be the newest Medal of Honor recipient, and uh, other guys we've had on the show, including, once again, Scott Guerin. So, we highly recommend that you pick it up, of course, and leave a review on Amazon.com. All right, we're wrapping it up here because we've already done the Army, Navy, the Air Force, and what is left but a recon Marine, none other than Rudy Reyes on episode 85. That's the newest one of these four. Check it out. Hope you enjoy. 
how did your journey, I guess you'd say, into yeah. special operations start? Are you one of those kids who, from the moment you were, you know, in first grade, said, "I want to be a Marine"? Or how did how did it all start? A lot, a lot of people don't know. They know the generation kill Rudy on. They know that, yeah, but they don't know basic training, Rudy. I mean, I, Antonio, your buddy Antonio, when it's he was terrible. GRS, it's yeah, terrible. yeah, well, he told me a little bit, uh, but yes. but that, that was when he was a GR, doing the GRS thing, but uh, but. I think our listeners, because nobody's really heard that about that. And I think they want to know, especially our young, we get a lot of young listeners that want to join. Yes. And yes. man, I they, I love them to hear that story of where you, you it, started, bro. what decided, and then basic, a basic training story, dude, or your whole basic training. I yeah, Nobody knows that, man. Well, you know, okay. <clears throat> My father, I have two fathers. Uh, the man that gave me his name, Rudy Reyes Sr. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a devil dog in Vietnam and, and he's passed. And then my biological father, was also a Marine hmm. and his name's um, Hector uh, or Gustavo de la Yata and a Spaniard. Hmm. Um, he came from a wealthy family and he uh, was running from a tyrant father in Mexico. They're land barons. Um, I just found my family for the first time after the success of Generation Kill. I had some money and confidence that maybe I'd be received because uh, I never met my biological father. I went to meet the de la Yatas and uh, my sister's a medical doctor. I got a young, beautiful sister. Wow. My cousin is the district attorney of Austin, Texas. Um, his father is a professor of Latin and uh, psychology at the University of Texas. These are pretty intelligent, powerful people. But my father, but they're all Mexican and by yeah. uh, by way of Spain. They're just, uh, Chris, they're just as fair as us or yeah. even more fair than we are. Right. And well, they're, they're Basque. You get the Spaniards yes. that are Basque like my father. He, he looks Italian. He's so, so, so. For sure. That's why you and I, you know, I get, yeah. I get yeah. compliments oftentimes that, that I look like you or that we're brothers. Uh, I do. Right. <laughs> well, I, it, I it's, it, yeah, it, it's because of our sexiness though. I, okay. It comes from Spain. It's, it's the, it's the olive young. skin. It's this, it's this. It, it doesn't like age. We don't man. age. We age very like fine wine, baby. Like fine wine. So, so I, uh, I grew up kind of t- uh, tough. Um, my father, b- both fathers, uh, had some pretty extreme PTSD. Uh, De La Yata did two tours. My father, my real father is Rudy Reyes. Mm-hmm. He, uh, he, after he came back, he immediately got into law enforcement. Actually, no, I think first he was scrubbing out grain sure. elevators. Wow. Um, uh, you know, hard work on the border. And yeah. they're all from the border of Texas yeah. to Mexico. Yep. My mother was young and beautiful. But uh, a traditional Mexican woman, meaning you cook, you clean, you look good for your man, and that's it. So uh, it didn't work out, and my mother got involved in in the, you know, it was the early 70s, got involved in the drug world, and and then we started moving around, myself and my two brothers, and slowly but surely we were left here, left there. And uh, uh, ultimately, we were raised in the Omaha Home for Boys. On Did you? I didn't know that. No yeah, shit. Here, here in Omaha. No, I, I, yep. I live right by it. It's right, okay, it's right down the road. That's, it's, it's still 52nd and It's doing it's, really it's, good. I was there. Yeah. I was the keynote speaker for the 100-year anniversary. And, wow. No uh, shit. That's yeah, awesome. Thank you. Thank you to Omaha Home for Boys. They gave me a wrestling program. They gave me weights. They gave me food. Yep. I was. We were very sick when we got there. We, we all had worms and lice. Uh, I had hepatitis because we were wow. living in, in filth. Yeah. We were living in third wow. world African filth. Right? Wow. Uh, so we were taken by the state. 
we got medicine, we got haircuts, we got pride. Um, and, uh, and uh, I excelled as a wrestler. And that's what drove me into continue to do sports and martial arts. But when I was a little boy, I saw first blood. When I saw John Rambo, <laughs> uh, I just I just knew then. Do you remember when he uh, unscrews yeah, his yeah. knife and, and he's using the compass and, yeah, and, yeah. and he immediately goes into the E and E and then Sear and yeah, yeah. Um, and I thought this is an example of a man that can overcome and is capable because we were so poor and thrown around foster care and here or there. I didn't feel capable at all. I didn't know where my next meal was going to be. I didn't, there was a lot of abuse. There was a lot of neglect. So immediately I connected to, to John Rambo and always in my mind. And, and, and of course I read comic books and I was an athlete. So I built my body and my mind to be strong. Uh, and I was a kickboxer and a martial artist. And, but I was not mean yet, brother. I was not mean. Yeah, you don't become yeah. really hard to, to war and yeah, military. Yeah. Um, but, uh, the, the word on the street was that we had to go fight in Kosovo. And I saw a documentary of orphans in Kosovo, uh, in the sniper alleys, all the adults are dead and the little kids are fast enough to not get killed. And they're hiding out in this, in this old warehouse with a few civilians and NGOs trying to freaking take care of these kids in the middle of war. Yeah. And right there, it, it was an emotional hit to me because it brought me back to my childhood. Okay. I said, I am an able-bodied man, and we're going to go fight Kosovo. I'm going to do my duty. So, so you're six, 17 or 18 at that point? Were you getting out of high school? 26. Oh, you're 20. Okay, shit. I was wow. already a kickboxer. Wow. Okay. wow. I, um, I, I was heavy into my Zen Buddhism. Um, I was vegetarian. Uh, I, I just would – I imagined I would do – continue to compete kickboxing until I got old, so old that I would teach. I just love doing martial arts and having a simple life. And, uh, and I was an illustrator. I would work uh, uh, different commercial art jobs, but uh, that emotion of those kids. And then the idea that we got to go fight for people that can't fight for themselves. I thought of my dad and I joined the Marine Corps as an infantryman and um and no good deed goes unpunished in the Marine Corps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. And you're and you're an old and you're an old fart because I went through I guess, I 25. I yeah, guess, yeah. You, you and I wish we could be 26 again. I know. I look at 26 year old now, and I'm know. like, look at this kid. <laughs> look at this kid. <laughs> and so I go there, and I am, uh, and I'm the honor grad and Iron Man of boot camp, sure. and then SOI. And, and again, so as you, I got meritoriously promoted. Awesome. So they, they put me on guard duty. I'm the best of like speaking 600 guys. And now I'm running guard duty. And if any of you know about the Marine Corps, there's a, there's Camp Porno and Camp Pendleton. They're the most disciplined, <laughs> anal retentive, freaking hater raid. Swear <laughs> the fuck. If you do not have a freaking high and tight or horseshoe, you're out of regs. You better have that freaking uh, – your shave needs to be so clean every day. You yep. better have yeah. some, some blood on your face. And, um, I mean, it's squared away. And, by the way, and, and that's where uh, Anthony's from. That's where okay. Sparrow is. Yep. That's gotcha. where yep. Sparrow squared the fuck away. Yep. Also, very little creativity and life <laughs> sucks. So they put me there on guard duty. 
to do relief and ex- and and uh, sure. uh, guard relief and run the guard shack. I'm there for about two months in a squad bay. They got a pull-up bar, and I'm doing calisthenics. I, I'm not even seeing the sun because there's always some young marine running to freaking Mexico or something. <laughs> we gotta go get the guys. I mean, brother, it was rough. And I and I thought to myself when I looked in the mirror at my freaking super high and tight haircut, I'm like, another fine mess you got yourself into this time, Rudy This is how it's going to be for four years at least. Give you just and I said very well. Yeah, remember we used to have the tan, from yeah, our, our freaking rolled up sleeves here and a tan here down and white all around. White. Yeah. So uh, I did so well. The corporal of the guard. Recon was coming through Horno to run their end dock. Okay. He put my name up, and um, and I didn't know how to swim. Named shame. Yeah. Everybody thought it. All the young Marines thought. You know, they still called me guy because I was the guy at boot camp. Guy can do it. Guy's gonna go recon. I didn't know how to swim. I was embarrassed. <laughs> I I hid in the squad bay in the back of the, the, the barracks, <laughs> and. With a big leap of faith, I said, fuck, everybody believes I can do it. I'm scared to death. I'm going to give it everything I got, but I'm probably going to drown in the swimming pool. <laughs> and, um, and I was so dominant, Chris. I was so dominant on the run. 300 PFT, so my sure. uh, yeah. uh, pulls and, and crunches, and my run was 1720. Yeah, Then we went through the uh, – Oh, course three times, and yep. then we're doing exercises and boots and utes. And every every time you go through it, of the three, the slowest is done. The slowest yep. is up. Now we put on our freaking seventy pound rock, and it's an eight mile run, a trail yep. run, right? Yep. To the pool. I was so dominant. I got to the pool twenty or thirty minutes before the next guy. And these are seasoned grunts. These are seasoned snipers. Yep. These are brothers that that been to Ranger and got their jump. Yep. 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 Trying to get to recon. Been in the core eight years or so. And I've been in the core five months. Yeah. And um, and they can all tell I'm boot as fuck. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they, they called me forever, Lance Corporal. Happy to be here because I was uh, so standing by, having having my soul freaking ripped apart, looking at the water and looking at the real swimmers. How, how, <laughs> how, how far? How far do you have to swim for the for the end? Oh my gosh! The abandoned ship uh, drill off the top. Uh, with your uh, uh, boots and utes and, and rifle, then tread. Freaking yep. 20 minutes. I didn't know how to tread. I was kicking this way. I was kicking like this. Ah! And then, and then uh, and, <laughs> and they grabbed the rubber bit brick. And it's got to stay out of the water. Yep, yep, yeah. Except, brother, I was under the water the whole time. I couldn't, I mean, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. So, uh, and then you're a 500 meter uh, a time swim in camis. I never swam in camis. Playing around in a freaking swimming pool and looking at chicks is not swimming. No. All right. So I've really been swimming. And you you got and you got your boots and ears. And people realize how much that water that weighs a lot when it gets wet. Mercy. It weighs you down. And stats like us were muscular and lean. I had no Yep. No buoyancy. I just kept it. I kept trying to go harder. Which means I'm going slower. This means you're tightening up, and you, when you yeah, tighten up right? in the pool, you start to sink even more. Oh, you, brother, oh, yeah. Just, yeah. At that time, brother, it was the hardest thing I'd ever been through. I've been through hard. I've been through uh, uh, survival situations on the street since a kid. I've been through the boys' home and fighting. I've been through so much, but at that moment, that water was so difficult. 
And after we do all of that stuff, we have to tread for half an hour. And that's the hardest thing I've ever done in my life at that time. And then you got the recon guys and fins and freaking masks sharking you. Sharking you, yeah. And I'm starting to cramp everywhere. You know, I'm cramping. Uh, And then they got a fire hose and they're hitting you and you're trying to breathe up top. (laughs) So we finally get out of that bad bear. I survived. And a lot of guys, brother, I swear to you, I swear to you. Ian, Chris, there was some Marines holding so hard onto the side of the pool. I swear their fucking fingerprints are wow. in the water to this yeah. day. They would not get the, yeah. the shark for trying to get them back in the water. No, no, no bro. <laughs> it's like one of Dante Inferno's planes of hell, bro. But but it does do it does that water does that to you. I, it, when right. you if you're and if you can't stay relaxed in that shit for and you start sure. to sink and then you take that first gulp. If you don't tell yourself, okay, I'm going to have to drink water. And you yes. take that first gulp thinking that that's how I got through all my swimming, the pre-scuba, the water yes. filtration. I, I hated it, but I just, okay, I'm going to have to drink water. If I, I was just yes. drinking water. Hey, just hey, drink look, the water. I'm here to drink water. That's you don't get that attitude. Absolutely. Brother, I was new at it. Even the water in my face, I was freaking out. Somehow I make it through the water. I get out. Now we got to do a six, seven mile run, but we're slick. I whoop all that ass again. So, um, and you know, imagine when we were instructors, Chris, um, when we were instructors, we saw potential in our students. And if they had the raw material, even if they didn't know what the, what the hell they were doing, we know that they are going to be with training an asset to our unit. Yeah. Yeah. So um, my, my uh, cadre and leader of the whole thing, his name is Roger Sparks. Okay. And he was a recon daddy and a ranger from the old days. And he then went to pararescue, I think at 33 or 34. Wow. And um, their, their, their in-doc program is nothing but uh, Olympian water. No, it, it, it's tough. People think pararescue. I, we give the PJs and this Air Force yes. circle, but they, they have, I'll be out of everybody, I think, I've, and I have their booklet. I should train on their booklet because I thought it was so tough. The pararescue combat. I think they have the toughest doc out of all of them. I agree, I, I, brother. I, I have I to say. It's an Olympian swim program. It is. And so for that reason, it's mostly 18 to 25-year-old yeah. Olympian yeah. swimmers that do it. Roger went in there already as a grunt, as a ranger and recon daddy. Um, 33, which is ancient, 34, and um, he he's, was the honor grad. Wow. He all these records, and now Roger is the um, – he's the highest decorated pararescueman of all time. He fought in a fight uh, in Afghanistan for uh, the 101st Airborne and went in there and shot and saved eight brothers. We got to get him on the show. Him, <laughs> he's spiritual. Oh, he, he oh that's awesome. Created me, and he's eating an apple as I'm coming across the freaking finish line. And he's and he always says, "Hey, big daddy, good effort." <laughs> Absolutely a savage, and and he's six foot ten or six foot eleven <laughs> with nothing but chest. Yeah, yeah, just chest, chin, and chest. <laughs> Best chest in the West, big daddy. Anyway, you're gonna love this man. You're gonna you're gonna see so much of him in me when you meet the man. Uh, and now he's my uh, my teammate on Force Blue, the real tall PJ. Oh, okay, yeah. I see I see pictures when you post. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Gotcha. I'll tie you guys in. I'll tie you guys in. So um, BRC, which is the 
East Coast or West Coast school was all slotted up. So I had to go to the East Coast, which is Amphibious Reconnaissance School. It was the first one. It was old. It used to be a Recondo school. And both Army and Recon used to go there back in the Vietnam era. And, uh, and I go to school there three and a half months, being the boot of the boot. Never, I had no field crap, Chris. I didn't, I had to learn everything there, all my knots, I, everything. I had to learn everything, wow. everything. And it was a steep learning cur- curve. Yeah. yeah. All you young men out there that want to be commandos, all you young men out there, let me tell you what. Number one is you're never going to be able to prepare enough. You're never going to be able to prepare enough. It's going to push you further than you've ever imagined. And some things that, uh, that you can't comprehend yet will, will test you um, so far. It will take everything you have. But the bottom line is be extremely physically fit. Yeah. And that means mentally fit. If you're extremely physically fit, sometimes your body will overcome things because your brain is gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your brain is going to be gone sometimes. When you, uh, I think you all do a similar thing, a patrol phase where you guys are up for a week. Run oh, missions, yeah, not yeah. just playing games, not just doing PT. I mean, running missions during the day. You're planning in a swamp. We do it, in, and then everybody's yeah, yeah. on a knee with the freaking ruck on their back, and then we're executing in the evening, and then a final EME after that, and getting freaking tear gas. And um, there's going to be times when you're going to see Native Americans. And- <laughs> I, know, I, I used to see I used to see monkeys in the trees from The Wizard of Oz. Yeah. I used to see the Wizard so of Oz monkeys at night. Things. I, I had our, our Native American brothers, our spirit, my spirit guides, and they, were, <laughs> and they were helping me control through the woods. And then sometimes I saw the aliens come down. Uh, I mean, and, they, and by the way, this is the norm because it's like I've heard yeah. Nick Irving talk about the same it thing. Is. It, it, it is because the, the, the brain, the brain the, checks out. The brain, the brain checks out. Oh, yep. got so much bandwidth. But if you extremely physically <laughs> fit, your your body's got a brain too. It does not want to die. Yeah. And if your character is correct, you will not quit as long as you will not quit and your body won't die because it wants to live and you're strong. You're going to make it. So stay physically fit. Spot on. That, right? spot, that is spot. I got to tell you, your brain will always quit before your yep. body. And that's, I, true. that's happened and so many times. If your character is good, if your heart is there and you will not give up, then that's fine. You don't even need your brain for this shit for a while. Right? <laughs> you know? It's like your brain's checked in. But yeah, it, it's, it's so true. And that is the end of the first ever Battle Line podcast. Best of. I hope that you enjoyed it. If you did, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us out. You can follow me on Twitter at Ian Scotto and on Instagram at Ian Scotto. And, uh, of course, you could follow us. Uh, you know, you always hear it at the end, but on Twitter, at BattlelinePod. On Instagram, at BattlelinePodcast. And you all know Chris's accounts, Real Chris Peranto, although he is not on Twitter. Uh, but, yeah, that's the show. We'll be back on Monday uh, and the following Monday because we're going to have a two-part Q&A, and you're going to dig it. That's about it. Stay positive. Never give up. That's all for this episode of the Battle Line Podcast. But we'll be back on Monday with more American Straight Talk. Until then, 
be sure to follow us on Instagram at Battleline Podcast and on Twitter at Battleline Pod. To sign up for future Battleline tactical courses, go to www.christantoperanto.net. Believe in yourself, face all challenges head on, and as always, never quit. <laughs>